I would read my 360 reviews and it would be mostly glowing. It would say Jay is proactive, Jay is direct, but it would also say Jay is intimidating. That came up time and time again. It was such a pattern that I went back and asked some of my employees and then I went on a long road towards transformation in terms of my leadership. Welcome to the Good Around Us podcast. Here we share stories of people doing good for others. I'm your host, Stephanie Keeley. Jay Guilford is a leadership strategist in Las Vegas. He develops leadership programs and has trained teams from top performing companies such as MGM, Microsoft, MasterCard, Google, Uber, P&G, and more. But interestingly, his leadership journey began as a self-proclaimed bully boss. Listen in for Jay's story. He has wisdom to share for all of us leaders. And of course, I have thoughts on the topic as well. Here's Jay. Jay, you were a bully boss. Yep, I unfortunately was. (laughs) Yes. So set this stage for us. What does that look like? What were you doing to later identify that indeed you were a bully boss? Well, let's start with the fact that I was 24 years old and I had kind of demanded this director's role. I had been an intern in this program before and I went to the leader of the program and I said, I can do the director's job better than the current person. And so I got the job. What that looked like was I was a director who was very direct, which was really great in terms of leadership. I was very direct. I gave feedback. I was unafraid to give negative feedback. I was unafraid to criticize team members. And I had anywhere between 12 and 20 team members at a given time. Unfortunately, I was a leader who was very direct. (laughs) And I would just say things without any compassion. Like it looked like me at 24 telling uh, other folks, I don't care how you feel. I need you to do your job. That's a phrase that I used to say. I used to snap my fingers at people and point to where I wanted them to go. Um, I never yelled, but I was definitely hostile. I was definitely emotionally abusive. I will own up to that now. I'm not that anymore, folks, but I definitely was. (laughs) Um, And it was because I didn't have any of the leadership skills that were necessary. I just had a hammer and everything looked like a nail, so... So a bully boss might be someone who looks at a a person, an employee as a function, as a tool, as an output, not a human being. Yeah. Bullying has a very specific definition. So if I can nerd out a bit, if you don't mind, there's three types of toxic behavior. There's bullying, there's hostility, and there's harassment. Bullying is specific because it's targeted, usually at one or a small group of people It's repeated um, and it has negative consequences. So it could be, it could be emotionally charged, like yelling or cursing, or it could just be emotionally damaging or manipulative. So bullying is very specific because it's targeted. Like hostility can happen once someone can yell and get angry, but it's not targeted at you and it doesn't happen repeatedly. Harassment is specific because it's based on your identity categories, your membership into a protected category. And because of that, harassment is against the law in the U.S. Bullying is not. So bully, you got to be very specific about that because people say mm. bullying. 
if it happens once, it might be hostility, but it's not bullying because it's not happening happening 20 times. It is still serious. If it's based on your um, membership in a protected category, it is harassment. It is against the law. But the difficulty with bullying is that it's not against the law in the U.S. And it's sometimes subtle, so it's difficult to name. Like I was kind of like a subtle bully, you know. You're looking like maybe, Stephanie, you've experienced that before. You're looking like, hmm. Oh, (laughs) you read it right on my face. Yes. Yeah. I think so many people have, you know, found themselves in work situations where a manager or an authority figure is, you know, repeatedly targeting with bad behavior. They're not bringing you up. They are trying to push you back. And a lot of times it, it seems like it's self-serving, you know, it's to make them look or feel better themselves. And that can be really, that can be really challenging to navigate, especially if you're newer in a role or younger in your career. Um, And if the corporate culture is allowing it, you know, if it's, or ignoring it, choosing to ignore it. So I wonder, do you have tips for us about what should we do if we are experiencing that bully boss? Run. (laughs) (laughs) Run. Yeah, you're right, Stephanie. It it can, can be challenging because corporate America is just catching up with this stuff. They're just realizing that soft skills can have hard consequences for the organization. A lot of people, first, I'm going to rant that a lot of people don't like cancel culture, but I think cancel culture can be powerful because now an employee can record you and put you on Twitter and you have to suffer the consequences for your actions. So that's so I'm not saying, Stephanie, necessarily to record your boss, but you do have a lot of recourse. The first thing I would say is if you're in a bullying situation. Be clear that it's bullying and not harassment. Because if it's harassment and it's based on your identity, then you need to go to HR because it's against the law. And I promise you, if you go to HR and say, I'm being harassed, 99% of the HR professionals in the U.S. understand what that means and it's against the law. They're going to take action. Um, So if it's harassment, go to HR. If you're experiencing bullying at work today, here is a key tip. If you can know that someone's bullying you in the moment, just get out of there. Tell them. I got to go to the restroom. I promise you, even the word, it's going to disarm them. They're going to be like, oh, oh they're not going to be like, no, you can't. So just <laughs> the situation and you can have time to uh, get yourself together. And it might even give the bully time to reflect on their behavior. So one, get out of the situation. If it's harassment, go to HR. The other thing you can do is if you can't necessarily approach the bully, which you probably don't feel comfortable doing, you can find um, what I call an influencer. And by an influencer, I don't mean somebody who has 10,000 followers on YouTube. I mean, someone who can influence the heart and the mind of the bully. And what you want to do with that influencer is ask them to point out the behavior to the bully. Ask them to say, hey, Kareem, I noticed that you are doing this set of things to Stephanie twice a week. Kareem, this looks like bullying. It is going to have repercussions for you. And it's definitely damaging Stephanie. 
So if you can't say that, have someone say that to the bully. So those are a couple of things you can do. Um, and I would say the there's another thing is find your self power. Uh, that that's the other part. that can be challenging with bullying, but you do have some self power in there. Oh yeah, I feel like we could we could spend an hour on finding your power. Yes, <laughs> yeah, I'm still looking for a lot of mine, but I found some of it. <laughs> um. So you, how long would you say that you were living in that behavior of this bully boss role? Um, to admit it, probably, I want to say three years, but I noticed it within three years, but it's probably more like five. Yeah. Well, you know, I, early in your career, your mid twenties, you had a lot of maybe ego yeah. and trying to prove yourself. And so then what was your transformation point where you said, Whoa, there's another way to lead. Like there's another way to get this job done. And it, and this isn't the right way. Well, the transformation point was the third set of 360 reviews I got because it took three sets for me to hear it. I would read my 360 reviews and it would be mostly glowing. It would say Jay is proactive. Jay is direct. Jay manages the logistics well. But it would also say Jay is intimidating. That came up time and time again. And I just read over that. I was like, they just can't handle my directness. They just can't handle my authority. And then after the third time, it was such a pattern that I went back and asked some of my employees and they were honest. And they said, yeah, you, these sets of behaviors. And they repeated the words and the phrases and they pointed out the situations. And that gave me pause. And then I went on a long road towards transformation in terms of my leadership. You're moving past this role. You're working on yourself as a leader and you end up at Cirque du Soleil. What were you doing there? What kind of work were you doing at Cirque du Soleil? I was not bullying. I'll tell you that. <laughs> no, so that's interesting. I moved on. I went to a lot of learning and development courses. I meditate a lot, a whole bunch of transformation. So by the time I get to Cirque du Soleil, I'm actually teaching other leaders and I'm not I'm not bullying anyone, folks, so don't be afraid to go to the circus. You won't find bullies there. At Cirque du Soleil, I'm teaching core leadership and team building competencies to executives and Fortune 500 companies. We're doing it in a unique way. So we're strapping executives, or we were when I was there. I was there for six and a half years. We were strapping executives into Cirque du Soleil apparatuses and flying them high across our theaters and our training rooms. We did that sort of talking about collaboration, communication, trust, and healthy risk-taking in a boardroom. They actually experienced it, and then they were able to unpack it. So that it was kind of fun, if you can imagine. It was, I I mean, I literally worked with a bunch of clowns, literally, yeah. That would be entertaining. Did you yourself ever, did you fly across the room and... Oh, yeah, I had to do it before I let anyone else do it. Uh, and I had done circus arts before, so I was familiar with a lot of the equipment. Um, and I I was, uh, I was, had done a little gymnastics, not anything great. I could do a round off back tuck, but not anything Cirque du Soleil. So I was familiar with a lot of the uh, equipment and a lot of the stunts. And yeah, they put me on the Circeau. I got on the tumble track. I was on, I've been on every stage in Las Vegas and many of the tension and touring shows. Wow. 
Well, you know, it takes, I've heard like, you know, if you were really bad at math, but your dream is always to be a teacher, you might end up being a really great math teacher because it took like kind of failing at it, or it took having to figure it out in order to be that really great teacher. And so you yourself experienced this kind of shortfall in your own leadership journey, like where you said, wow, I'm, I'm just, this is not the kind of behavior that a leader is. So then you really went through the work of self-improvement and learning about leadership development, and then went on to teach it to others. So what kind of executives were you working with and are you working with in your leadership development work and in your consulting work? So yes, that's a great question. Now I'm with, I am the owner of CoWorks Leadership Strategist and I have a team. There's four other uh, trainers and coaches and consultants on the team. We've worked with uh, executives from Procter and Gamble, Empire State Building, Disney, um, a lot of well-known nonprofits and larger organizations that Graham Wyndham is a large nonprofit, but most people don't know it. The Point Foundation is another. So we work with Fortune 500 companies and mid-sized to large nonprofits and then smaller organizations also. And what we do is we go in on the highest levels of leadership and we teach those leaders how to change their behaviors so that they can be better for their teams. And at CERC, of course, there's all the brands like Google, Adobe, Microsoft, MasterCard, Gensler, you know, I mean, a lot of major brands. NASDAQ was one that came for the sessions. So, um, and I do, I think we talked about this, Stephanie, the reason why I do podcasts like this is because I've had the good, great fortune of advising some very high profile leaders. I've advised leaders whose names are on buildings, who their names are on equipment, their names are on the stuff we see in grocery store shelves. And I wanna Robin Hood that knowledge. I wanna take that stuff I've learned and give it away to people who may not have the budget to hire me to come and do a training session or a coaching session. So, um, yeah, that's the type of work we do. And I'm giving away for free folks. And so, you know. Well, let's hear it. So what are a couple of your key takeaways that you have learned from working with these uh, top executives? So I'm going to speak now. I, I'm sure there are top executives listening to your podcast. And if they're not, they should be. So I'm going to speak to them first. Executives, hear me loud and clear. You have some great competency, some great skills, but oftentimes the very go-get-itness that got these executives there is not what they need to stay there. So when I've worked with people, we just did something with an engineering company. I can't say who, but the name of the person was on the stuff. And, you know, this person, she was very, she had a dog it, go get it attitude. And part of what I helped her with was that you don't need to do that. Like you don't need to do that in order to be successful anymore. You kind of got where you are. So for leaders, think about ways you can change your behavior in order to meet the needs of your team. I would say, ask your team, say in our next meeting, come with in our next one-on-one, -on -one, come with two to three things that I need to change and tell me how to do it. And then take their feedback and make the change. So that's for leaders. For employees, and, and Stephanie, I'm going to apologize because this is going to sound counterintuitive. So I'm going to take a deep breath because it's going to be shocking. 
you shouldn't, employees know you should not be bullied at work. No, you should not experience toxicity. At the same time, realize that your leaders are also people. And what I've seen is that oftentimes leaders are thrown into these highly charged situations. They're given their leadership role because they have the technical ability or industry knowledge. They have yet to develop the emotional intelligence. So be patient with them as they develop that. Give them the feedback so that they can develop that. Realize that the leader, no leader at seven years old said at 37, I want to be a bully boss. They didn't say that. So somehow they got there. And if you can have a little patience and, and empathy and compassion, it goes a long way. That's so useful. You know, thinking about that, that leadership role, especially a key executive or a founder of an organization, they have it's like you get to a certain point where it's, it's your, like you said, that industry knowledge, that real hands-on skill and that, that um, just perseverance that has built this business. But then in a certain point, they have to shift from that being their key, their, their like key asset to then saying, you know what, now I need to shift and be a leader. And now my key focus is on managing people who are really great in the industry and who are doing the work and who know things that I don't know. And I've got to focus on strategy and people management. Like how can I build my soft skills so that everyone else can do their best work and feel their best doing the work in this company that I've created? And that's what, Stephanie, that's it. If people feel good going to work, they work better. Sean Acor has huge studies out of Harvard that shows that. There's so many studies. So a lot of leaders, what, what we, when people think about soft skills, they think about them as optional. The way that you interact with your team members determines the level of quality of their work. So that's going to be really important. Or the way that your leaders are interacting with clients, if they're flying off the handle or if they don't know how to handle difficult clients, When that client doesn't renew in two years, you're not going to connect that to the fact that your leaders are emotionally unintelligent. So that emotional intelligence will win you business and it'll retain your talent. It'll attract new talent. People read those glass door reviews. People who have higher reviews get top talent, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And especially in this market, you know, it, it seems to be an employee's market right now and companies have to start really paying attention and holding their leadership accountable for this, this softer side of work. Yeah, exactly. And now, like you said, it's an employee's market. And also you're not getting the body language cues because we're all on Zoom and other virtual platforms. So leaders need to be more emotionally intelligent because you're not getting 80% of the message about how they're responding. You don't see the body language. So you got to be, you got to develop these skills. Well, talk to us a little bit about that because it's been something I'm curious about your perspective on. We've got this remote workplace and that is just, it can be really disconnecting. Um, There's a lot of freedom in it. There are a lot of, uh, assets to working remotely. There's so much we can do from our own homes, but how do we as leaders, how do we 
do our best work in managing our people and 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 being and developing those soft skills when we are divided by a computer screen or are across the country or at the globe and working with our teams? Well, I would say a couple of things. I'm going to say something that I'm, I'm always the guy who says the unpopular stuff. Work from home, remote work, hybrid work, it's great because it shows us that we can have a professional life and more of a personal life. At the same time, there will be, there is a necessity to gather your group together. So what we're seeing and from our side is that there is a rise in offsites and retreats, and there's going to be a rise in smaller uh, conferences because people gain valuable information and insights about each other when they're together. So the first thing I would say, if you're a leader, as you look three, six, and nine months down the line, start planning that offsite or retreat for your team. It could be locally, or you might need to spend the budget to fly them in from around the globe. The organization has saved some money or will be saving some money soon in rent, you know, to the tune of tens of millions of dollars for some organizations. So earmark some time to bring them together. I would say executives should be coming together quarterly. Um, and I would say team members at least once a year. Yeah, at least yeah. once a year. Unless you have a team of 5,000, maybe that's not tenable for a team. But, you know, if you have a team of 10, you can get some budget to bring them together somewhere. Oh, I agree. I think it's so valuable. And um, to be face-to-face and to yeah. have convers- side conversations, not awkward ones when you first jump on Zoom and it's like, how is everything yeah. in front of a Can't- face? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I was everything, but you can't see anything. Yeah. 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 Um, but to have those water cooler conversations, um, it, you know, at least once a year with your team. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how, what was beneficial about being in the office is that you had what they call those culture clashes when someone from finance would run into someone from marketing or IT, and then you come up with some idea and then you activate it. That's happening less. So, Uh, I think the work from home and the freedom and flexibility is great. We also need to build in the time for face-to-face. We have this reverence for the digital and it solves some problems. It also creates others that we just need to manage. Yeah. You know, I want to go back to something you mentioned earlier as, um, you know, being part of a work team and having leaders, we all have leaders and managers and that we're all, we're all reporting to someone. Um, but you, you said that we should be patient and we should make sure we're remembering our leaders are human beings as well. And I think that is, that is so important because it can be really frustrating to see poor leadership. But if you see those signs of a leader trying to do better, like, and they may be subtle signs, but if you, if you can pay attention that like, oh, they're actually trying to get this, you know, they're trying to do this a little bit better, you know, to give that grace. Um, it can be a challenge to do it, but I think it, you're right. It is so important that we acknowledge it. Mm-hmm. I would say, Stephanie, we need to change sides of the, uh, the computer screen. Cause you hit the nail on the head. It's like when leaders do things that are good, you want to actually tell them, uh, there's a study I read in the Harvard Business Review. It's from, I think it's from Vital Smarts. They said there were 1,300 employees in the survey. 80% of them said uh, that their leader had a fault, that the fault was obvious, that they were all talking about it. 
and that no one told the leader. I might have already said this, but no, but, no. So, so 80% of them said that we see the leader has a fault and we're not telling her. They're not telling the leader, maybe because they're intimidated, but also maybe because they're assuming something about the power structure. They're assuming that the leader might react poorly. Oftentimes though, we don't also tell the leader when they're doing something well. And the leader is a person, the more you tell them what they're doing well, they'll do it more. You know, I really appreciated the fact that you gave me 15 minutes for this, or I really appreciated the fact that you, um, you know, overlooked this or that if you tell them what you want and what you think about the great things you're doing, they'll do more of it. Well, let's get back to your story because I definitely want your voice to be the primary one here. (laughs) So take us back, you know, we mentioned that you were working with Cirque du Soleil and we, we talked a little bit about some of the theatrics and the, the, the cool aspects of that workshop you were doing there. And I'm curious, working with it, working in the circus, working with clowns, there has to be some kind of entertaining story that, or, or something notable about your time there. Is there anything you want to share about that, that time with Cirque du Soleil? Yeah, it's not, there's a lot of entertaining stuff. I mean, if you go back, I don't use Facebook anymore, but if you go back to my Facebook page, you'll see me with clowns in hotel rooms and on stages and you can, all that stuff. But what was really interesting to me, may not, maybe not entertaining, but thought provoking was understanding how Cirque did what they did. Like there's this myth that Cirque just goes to scout Olympic level athletes and then they put a gymnast on the stage and they put her in makeup and costume and she's a performer. That's not true at all. Like they have to take these competitive athletes and transform them into collaborative artists. Think about a gymnast competes solo, then they have to perform as a troupe. Gymnasts are usually on the ground or maybe 18 feet high with the rings, but then they have to go 40 feet high. Gymnasts are primarily technical executors, and then they have to be artistic performers. So I talked to artists and they would say, yeah, I'm an aerialist, but I'm kind of afraid of heights. And Or they would say, oh yeah, I perform on the stage. I'm primarily, I was a gymnast but I had to learn how to dance and that scared the crap out of me. So that stuff I never thought about. I just thought, oh, you know, you're a gymnast, you get up there and you do the flips. They were like, we don't dance or, you know, sing or clown around in gym. It's a totally different thing. So stuff like that to me was mind blowing to think like, because you think it's like, oh, they have Olympians. It's easy for them. No, oh, the Olympians have to swim. They're gymnasts, but now they have to flip into water. So it's, it's, it was just a lot of interesting stuff like that. Oh, wow. You know, that's a really creative field. And what you're describing there is kind of like pushing the boundaries of your own creativity and in mastering new skills, especially as people who are Olympians, they are perfectionists and masters of their yeah. trade. <laughs> I'm curious, um, you know, as a leadership expert and doing the work you do, like what, what do you think about the value um, of creativity and kind of that vulnerability and that, that whole practice? Is there, is there space for that in our leadership development work? Yeah. First of all, I think we have to demystify creativity because when people hear about it, they do think about organizations like Cirque du Soleil or, or Pixar or Disney, or when they talk about innovation, you think of the tech folks like Google or Twitter or you know any of those folks. Creativity is really just generating ideas about how to do things differently. 
Innovation is following through and doing it. That's really what it is. So everybody is creative. We've all we've all been in a situation where we're trying to prop open a door, open it and it doesn't stay open, and we use a rock or a shoe. That's creativity and innovation. You know, it's like life hacking work. So first of all, demystify it. But yeah, we got to be creative at work. So, and it can be anything from you don't have to be in a highly creative industry to think about how to do your spreadsheets differently or how to handle your email differently or how to set up your home office differently. So there are small ways to be creative and innovative. It doesn't mean you're creating the next billion dollar app, you know, is thinking about how to do things differently in a way that's interesting and moves you towards your goal. That's what it really is. Yeah. Yeah. So, so important. I think, um, like you said, and it can be in really small ways, just how do I do something differently than I was doing it before? Exactly. Um, so you shared with us why you're doing this kind of work, because you yourself experienced yourself being that kind of bully boss, and you knew that that wasn't the right path. And so it, it seems like that's what led you to this kind of this kind of work, but I'm curious why you do it day after day. Like what's your motivation um, for working with groups and working with executives and building those leadership skills? Two things. Well, a couple of things. One, yeah, I was a bully boss, but I also have been bullied a lot at work. Like Mm. one situation where a president of a team like just cursed me out for like five minutes in front of a group of leaders I was supposed to lead. Um, and I cried. I didn't cry at the moment, but I cried and I solved it later because fortunately I, I'm a trained mediator. So I knew to go back and solve it, but most employees aren't trained mediators. So the reason why I do it is partly because I was a bully boss, but also I've experienced the damage it can do. And I also just love sticky problems. I, as I said, my superpower is being very direct with authority figures. I, I wasn't good at that because as a bully boss, because I was just too direct with a lot of people. Now I've, I've translated it into a power. So I can walk into any, I don't care, Fortune 100 company and Mrs. CEO or Mr. Whoever, I don't care. I'll just say what needs to be said in a kind way. And so I just like seeing leaders transform. It's just the most uh, exciting thing to me. It's so um, rewarding. That's so interesting. You turned what was your kryptonite into your superpower. You know, that directness you, you said, yeah, yeah, let me use this to my advantage. How can I make this my greatest skill? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So what is the impact that you see? I mean, I know you have data around it, but you know, what's the most tangible, like why, why does it matter that you do the work that you do? What's the impact? The impact is, first of all, when I'm in situations where I'm one-on-one advising the leaders, I can literally see over, sometimes over the course of one conversation, sometimes it takes several conversations and interventions, I can literally see the light bulb go off. And the light bulb goes off because I'm coming in from the outside. I have no skin in the game. I don't know any of these employees. I don't have any favorites. 
I'm looking at your 360 reviews. I'm looking at your ambassador profile and your predictive index. And I'm looking at what your employees are telling me. And I've seen this 30 hundred times before. So this is why you should change. And because then I see the light bulb go off and I see them change. And not to brag on myself, I'm not bragging on myself, but I am bragging on myself, but not to brag on myself. In many organizations, it's been the case that I've had long-term relationships and in the exit interviews with employees, when they leave for other reasons, not necessarily because they're quitting, they often cite that the interventions that we bring has transformed them professionally and personally. So imagine if you learn how to communicate better, how great that would be at work, but also how great that would be with your kids or with your spouse or when you're in the grocery store and you're frustrated by the cashier. Imagine how useful it is to be emotionally intelligent instead of having road rage. So I do it just because it transformed me and I want to transform others. Oh, that's great. Well, send us out um, with a quote that you carry with you. A quote that I carry with me. Oh, one. Oh, this is one that I really like. Um, it's by Viktor Frankl. And he says, um, between the stimuli and the response is our choice. And in our choices, we have freedom. And that's been really big for me because I've been able to myself and help others understand that this thing happened and you usually respond this one way. You have many different options between the thing happening and you responding. And when you explore those options and understand them and start to actively select the option instead of knee jerking, then that's where freedom is. Mm, and freedom, what a great value. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. love it. <laughs> love freedom. Give me more of it. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much, Jay. Uh, I appreciate you coming on and sharing all your wisdom around leadership, letting us have a little conversation here about um, kind of some of those leadership aspects that are so important to so many of us doing work in the workplace right now and working with leaders or being leaders and being executives. So we really appreciate that. Thanks a lot, Stephanie. Jay and I could have talked for hours about all things leadership. I hope you got something to take away, maybe even an idea to try out in your workplace this week. Jay is so generous and wants you to know that he's open to hearing from you and offering free advice for executive leaders. You can find his contact info in the show notes. Now, I have a request. Could you leave a review for the Good Around Us podcast? It can be so quick and I genuinely appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Good Around Us podcast. Until next time.